On today's episode, Joe Thielen and I are joined by Clay Blackadder. Now, Clay is an elite-level precision rifle competitor and the owner of Clay's Cartridge Company. He's also involved with Ace Muzzle Brakes and JTAC Training. We learn about Clay's background and how he got into precision rifle shooting, and we pick up some tips and tricks that can help make you a better shooter. We hope you enjoy it. I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik. Thanks for joining us on another episode. Across the table for me, Joe Thielen, Assistant Director of Engineering. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Seth. Now, we've talked quite a bit about a bunch of different topics, and one that we always go back to, especially when you're involved, is precision rifle shooting. It's something that I enjoy and something that you've obviously been doing for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I grew up out west shooting prairie dogs with a varmint rifle, so inherently when you get a move forward with that and it evolves and changes, yeah, I enjoy it. I love shooting a long gun. Yep, love shooting a long gun, and we've got a guest on our podcast today that's pretty proficient, you could say. As Tate Streeter would say, pretty decent at <laughs> shooting a long rifle. So join me in welcoming our guest on the show today, Clay Blackadder. Clay, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I say that with all due respect that Tate referred to you, uh, you Austin, uh, Justin, and himself as pretty decent in air quotes. And I put the air quotes on there, but obviously you guys have really strung up a good track record of being really, really good competitors and really good stewards of the sport as a whole. And, uh, you know, we, you've been shooting our bullets and we're, we're happy to work with you because you do a darn good job and, and, uh, yeah, you've just been killing it as of the last few years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to argue with, uh, you know, good components. It doesn't matter how good you are. If you don't start out with, with a good foundation, good components, you're going to be fighting stuff all day long and you want to make sure that you're always a limiting factor. And I think that's absolutely the case here. Yeah. Right on. Well, before we dive into your uh, level of precision with a precision rifle, let's rewind the clocks a little bit like we've always done on this podcast. What was Clay Blackedder doing growing up? Where'd you grow up? Were you doing sports? Were you shooting? What, what were you doing? Uh, I grew up in Leedy, Oklahoma, and that's about 15 minutes from where Austin is from. Um, about 15 minutes north. So we grew up competing against each other in baseball, basketball, and uh, we ended up actually playing American Legion ball together when we were 17, traveling around together. But uh, that was pretty much all of our interaction was just against each other. We didn't really start hanging out together until we both got into this. But um, growing up, I was all about baseball. Um, my question yeah. to my parents was always like, how are the Yankees going to find me in this little bitty town? <laughs> how are they going to get here? So, um, unfortunately that's not, uh, not the path that I ended up on, but, uh, I can't complain too much. Yeah. So baseball, obviously America's pastime, great sport. Uh, and I'm guessing you were a pretty competitive individual and that seems to be a pretty common underlying trait. You get a good, you know, rifle you know, competitor is that they are fiercely competitive and they have the ability to not just have the physical skill, but it really comes down to the mental skill. I feel like, uh, do you think those sports, basketball, baseball, and that kind of stuff helps shape that? Uh, I think so. Baseball's, uh, you know, very mental, especially at the plate. Um, it's kind of a, kind of a game between you and the pitcher. Um, or if you're, if you're on the mound, Austin and I both pitched as well, but, 
Um, I mean, I was very competitive at baseball. We would, uh, from seventh grade on, there was a, a few of us on our team that all we ever wanted to do was, was play professional baseball. And so we'd go at, at six in the morning before school and lift weights. It wasn't an organized thing. We would just go and work out. And then whenever practice got over with, um, at the end of the day, we'd go out and practice by ourselves. We did that every single day. Um, that was just what we did. My dad actually built me an indoor batting cage, turned half of his shop into an indoor batting cage so that you know, we could always practice and he blew out his shoulder throwing me batting practice. Um, so wow. I, uh, we, we were very serious about it. Um, we had, we were very lucky to have the coaches that we had. Um, a lot of people from, I say a lot, there were several people from a town of 300 that ended up playing pro baseball. Um, and so we had access to really, really good information. So, um, being competitive was just kind of part of growing up we didn't lose a game at anything until i think we were 10 or 12 years old um like we wow. were undefeated from the time that we you know started t-ball till midway through you know 10 or 10 or 12 and under whatever it was so competitive is just kind of part of it that's that's awesome so during that time obviously hyper competitive but you're from oklahoma a lot of hunting culture down there did you grow up around guns did you grow up shooting and hunting uh yeah i did the earliest stuff that i remember is my brother and i going around and you know shooting birds with a 22 and my dad would give us a, a box of 22 ammo and he'd come back in 20 minutes and we're like, dad, do you have any more ammo? Cause we just, anything that we could you know, look at to, to pull the trigger out is what was going to happen. Um, cow patties were always a favorite, you know, watching those explode. Um, but, uh, just as fast as we could load them, we'd be, we'd be shooting them. But I was, I was atrocious with a gun. There's no question. Um, I would say whenever deer hunting came around, if I went one for eight, it was a really, really successful you know, shooting season. Um, I couldn't hit a deer to save my life. Just, I can't tell you how many deer that I missed four or five times standing still. Um, I just couldn't, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Wow. Would not have expected that. No, I would not have guessed that. Do you get buck fever, Clay, or what? I I sure did back then. Um, (laughs) but, uh, I was terrible anyway. I mean, if you put a pie plate at a hundred yards, I'd have been lucky to hit it, you know, twice out of 10 times. I just, I, I literally just could not shoot anything at all. I remember I was uh, quail hunting with uh, my dad and a guy that we went to church with, and he had taken us out. And afterwards, we were sighting in our rifles, and you know, my dad shoots this little bitty group with my gun, and he's left-handed. And then I get on the gun and I shoot, you know, a 12-inch group at 100 yards. I mean, legitimately, like a 12-inch group at 100 yards. And I'm, you know, complaining, saying it's because it's sighted in for a left-hander, you know. And so, I mean, I just I jerked the trigger really, really bad. Um, had just poor fundamentals all the way around. Just nothing, nothing good coming out of that. Okay, well, that's a good. Yeah, where did you turn? You're gonna have to tell us at yeah. some point here this morning how you turned the corner on that, because that'd be interesting. Yeah, you you really did turn a corner. So in high school, obviously competitive athletics, not the best shot in the whole world. What's uh, what's 18 years old look like for Clay? Did you go to college and continue baseball, or or what'd you do then? Um, kept with baseball. Um, had some some D1 scholarships. Decided not to go D1 because I didn't think that I would start as a freshman and I was not accustomed to sitting on a bench. So I thought that it would be better for me to, um, not to do that. Um, and maybe that was the wrong decision. Maybe it was the right decision, but I wanted to have the experience of, of playing. And, mm-hmm. um, is the average athlete going to be better in D1? Absolutely. But a lot of really good talent goes to smaller schools so they can hit the draft earlier. So you're still going to be playing against really, really good players. So 
that was uh, um, one of my thoughts. So um, I uh, went to school just with the plan of continuing baseball. And uh, the second game my freshman year, I blew out my shoulder. And uh, um, I was four for six at the time, so I had a pretty killer batting average in college. Um, but Yeah, uh, you did. <laughs> um, but uh, never got to play another game. I had surgery, came back the next year, um, and it just hurt too bad to throw. Um, I had torn my labrum and a couple other things um, the first time. And when I came back the next year, when I was throwing, it just hurt too bad to throw, and they couldn't find anything on an MRI. And uh, ended up, you know, going under surgery, and they took my arm through a throwing motion while I was under, and found out that I was chipping bone off my shoulder blade when I'd pull my arm back. So they attached an artificial tendon then there to keep it from going back so far. And uh, when you go from, you know, throwing in the 90s to uh, 60 with pain, you're not really that desirable anymore. So mm. uh, um, that was kind of the end of that. But uh, they kept me on scholarship for, for three years, even though I never got to touch the field again. So um, that Got was, an education out of the deal. I, I, well, my mother would disagree um, with that statement. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, the first place I went after I hurt my shoulder was a chiropractor. And he said, this is, you know, what's happened to your shoulder. Um, this is what it's going to take. And I went to a couple different uh, specialists and they said that, that I just needed to do rehab and it would fix it. They didn't think anything was torn. Um, when they finally, you know, got an MRI done, it showed exactly what the chiropractor had said was wrong. And so I started down the path of being a chiropractor and um ended up switching um majors after four years um and went to uh went to engineering and did that for a couple of years and then decided i was going to start my own business and so while i probably have more hours than anybody on campus i don't have a degree which you know my mother will be happy to point out yeah <laughs> well uh experience uh can pay the bills that's for sure so uh you're doing all this time in college when did you start picking up and taking shooting seriously or what did you know what did post-college look like and when did that shooting kind of pick up so i graduated high school in 2007 um i picked up a, a rifle like the style of rifle that we shoot or at least for that purpose at in may of 2016 um my my dad and I there's a you know it's probably just like about everybody else on the internet you you hear about long range shooting and you think you need a 338 Lapua and mm-hmm. so I did a bunch of looking um, found what I thought was just this smoking deal and uh, like good enough deal that you know that it's not that it's a scam it has to be a scam and. <laughs> I, uh, the other guy had one post on, on Sniper's side, the same rifle was listed on arms list. Um, and I was like, this has to be a scam. And so I did some digging and figured out, you know, where this person was from and, um, what, where they worked at and they worked at a, a firearms training company. I was like, you know what, this actually might be real. And I think people just aren't jumping on this because the price seems too good to be true. So I got a hold of the person and uh, my dad and I drove to uh, North Carolina, picked it up, came back. And, uh, that was the first, first time that I really, um, started, you know, shooting, shooting some long range. And I, all I wanted to do was shoot a thousand yards. I didn't have dope. I didn't know how to get there. I would just shoot and miss and then, you know, move something and shoot and miss. And I, I would have no idea why I'm going left and right and high and low on back-to-back shots. I mean, it just, it was, most people would laugh if they were seeing where, where those bullets were going. But, well, that's uh, an expensive cartridge to cut your teeth on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't shoot a whole lot of it. Um, I got pretty hooked pretty quickly and bought a Ruger Precision Rifle and showed up to a match. 
and got absolutely dead last, and but fell in love with it, sold that and basically every other gun that I had accumulated except for that 338, and got a hold of Wade Studeville and had him start building me a rifle. So I got a, a very basic taste um, in 2016, and he finished that rifle, um, and I picked it up December 16th of, of that year and then shot my first match in February of 2017. Wow, so kind of a... I'm going to say a, a, a relative newcomer yeah. um, and then just yeah quickly ascended the level of competency. When uh, you, you reached out to Wade Studeville, who's obviously a world-renowned precision rifle builder, when did you guys uh, get linked up with Tate, Austin, and Justin in that, that whole crew there? Because I know you guys went go to a lot of matches together now. Did that happen back then? Uh, not immediately. Not for me anyway. I... You know, I was terrible, obviously, when I, whenever I began, but I never liked to be anything other than the best at whatever I'm doing. So I, I practiced a lot and, and really tried to dig into it. And I think towards the tail end of 2017, I was starting to, to get it figured out. And so I think that was the first time that I'd, you know, really squatted with with Tate and Austin. Um, I'd, you know, spent a decent amount of time with Justin, but, uh, just the way things worked out, I'd never really shot with, with Tate or Austin. But, uh, I mean, Tate was, I mean, Tate's obviously a really big name in this. And, uh, my, my first club match with that rifle was at Tate's range. And I had never met the guy and I went up and, you know, told him, Hey, you know, I appreciate you, you know, give me one of these actions. It, it feels awesome. And I didn't know a whole lot at the time and, uh, just knew who he was. And, um, I mean, he treated me like I had been a customer for, for 10 years that I had bought 20 actions from him and they were trying out to do bolt knob. And he said, Hey, I'll send you one of these bolt knobs if you want. And I just felt like I was the most special person on the planet yeah. and, uh, tried it out. And that's, that's what everybody has on the rifle now is that, that bolt knob. But, uh, so I, I met Tate early on, but, you know, he was he was chasing it um, pretty hard at that point, and mm-hmm. um, just kind of the way it works out. A lot of times you travel with your competitive peers. That's just kind of how it how it plays out a lot of times. So um, we were shooting some of the same matches, but we didn't really start squatting together until the end of 2017, and then uh, 2018 and on. Pretty much every match, I'm with one or all of those guys traveling. That's awesome. Well, Joe mentioned this earlier. We got to find out how you went from. Couldn't hit a pie plate. Wait, yes. So did you did you just get on the YouTubes and find some <laughs> fundamentals? Uh, did you you know talk to you know somebody in the business? Did you you know find a, some some instruction somewhere? Wh- where did you change the gears? Because the fundamentals that that apply to long rifles, they also apply to almost anything else with a trigger on it, and you apply those same fundamentals. But where did you pick those up, and how how did you practice those? I don't have a very good answer for that. Um, I spent a lot of time at Justin's range just trying to get better. And whenever I first started, the bags that we have now didn't exist. And so there was a very wide range of how people shot off of barricades. Some people would push their bipod into the barricade. Some people would you know, pull it against the barricade. And just everybody had a different method of doing. Austin used to strap a uh, like a bungee cord to his belt and pull back on, on a barricade. Um, it was just, there was a lot of different ways that people shot barricades and none of them worked for me. I just, on a PRS barricade now, it's, it looks like a fairly unmissable target. But then I was like, if I can get a four out of eight, I'm going to be pretty excited here. And, uh, it just, you know, nothing, nothing really clicked. And then Justin showed me something that was brand new at the time. Um, at least the way that we, you know, that he showed me and it was free recoil and, 
at the time, it completely took using a bag out of the equation. The rifle that I had balanced very, very well on, on any prop, and so I would grab the uh, my bipod and pinch it um, between that and the barrel, and it just would lock up. It'd just be perfectly solid. When the gun went off, I would see absolutely nothing, but I would either hear that I hit the target or, or I wouldn't. So if my wind calls were fine, I did really good on positional stuff. And um, But... Uh, you know, I spent a decent amount of time tinkering, trying to make my gun shoot as good as possible. So I don't know if I just heard somebody say you need to be straight behind the rifle. And so I started working to get straight behind the rifle. But I don't remember watching videos. I never got to go attend a, a training, um, you know, with, with, with something. Um, so I think a lot of it was just time behind the rifle. And you, I'm, I'm a tinkerer, so I'm always trying to figure out how I can do things better. So... I mean, maybe the gun jumps one direction. I start figuring out why to, why that's happening. You know, can I fix it? But I started out with a a six five forty seven with a suppressor, which, you know, for for now that would seem like a heavy recoiling rifle. Um, in that in that configuration compared to what we shoot now, um, so it was probably a, a pretty good teaching tool starting with what I did. Yeah, it yep. can't go wrong with the six five. I mean, six five by forty seven, six five Creedmoor, two sixty, two sixty Ackley, all those kind of you know, relatively mild recoiling, launching a 140 right at that 2,700 feet per second yep. mark. Um, you, there's people that could win. You could win a match with that cartridge combo right now. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and, um, you know, you don't leave anything on the table ballistically, but you do pick up a little bit of recoil. But, man, what a, yeah, what a great way to uh, to get started. And it's it's remarkable to me that you went from not hitting a pie plate every time at 100 <laughs> yards to one of the best shooters in the country and nobody taught you about sight alignment, sight picture, trigger control, breathing, like some of the the basic fundamentals of breaking a good shot. You just kind of figured it out on your own with a bunch of time at the range. I mean, when you get to shoot with guys like like Rick Reeves and Austin and Tate, like you you should be learning every time they pull the trigger. So whenever they would get up on a stage, I'm sitting there and I'm watching what they do. And mm-hmm. then the next person would get up there. And somebody told me something whenever I first started was, um, if you RO a match, you can you can learn a lot just by watching how each shooter comes to the line. And so I RO'd the heat stroke 2016, and that was absolutely you know true. You could see really quickly who was good and who wasn't just by how they approached the stage. And mm. so, I mean, I, I'd sit there and watch everybody. So, I mean, it's not like I just figured it all out by myself. I'm watching people and, and mimicking what they're doing to try and, you know, see why why that works. So, but when you got guys like Tate and Austin and Rick Reeves and, and Wade that you're shooting with on, you know, every couple of weeks at matches, I mean, it's it's kind of an unfair advantage. It's almost like you're getting to attend a training just because of all the experience of that they have. Yeah, Joe, you've had the opportunity to shoot with a lot of those guys. Are you doing the same thing? Yeah, you just you just want to be a sponge. Just sucking it up. Yeah, yeah. learning. Yeah, so I know exactly what he's talking about. You're watching like, oh, I never thought of that. Or, oh, that's I'm going to try that. And yeah. then you, you just learn things that that works. Then yep. you start putting them together. I think one of the, I shot with uh, the Oklahoma crew, as I'll call you guys, the decent shooters, uh, at the, uh, the Hornady match in Utah uh, last year. And one of the the things that I really came away with was not so much of the physical application of things like shooting barricades and different props and stuff. Uh, it's their mental approach to a certain stage or how they, they mentally break down the wind when they write their dope cards out for when they go up to the stage. There's just some little mental tricks that, that I picked up like, oh my gosh, I, I never thought of doing it that way. But when I think about it that way, it makes a lot more sense. And 
yeah, you're just trying to pad your, your air budget so you can mess up and still hit the target still a little bit. Still hit the plate, yeah. Uh, so that was a, a, a pretty quick and drastic change from not being the best shot to being a, a really good shot. Uh, when did you get into reloading? Because obviously that's a, a huge part of your life now, but you said you were a tinkerer back when you got your first precision rifle from Studeville Precision. Um, did you get into reloading right away or is that something your dad did or something or how'd that go down? Um, well, that 338 Lapua was the first thing that I'd ever reloaded. Um, so definitely not the smartest idea. Let's start with a cannon. Um, so uh, let's just make sure that it can blow up and really hurt you if you do something wrong. But uh, um you know, not, I would not advise people to start the way that I did, but when I got the 6.547, again, I, I thought I wanted a dasher. That's what I was convinced that I wanted, and Wade talked me out of it and, you know, told me all these reasons why. And probably the biggest one that he just never said, he's like, you're probably going to blow it up. That's probably what he was really thinking, um, is that I'm going to blow up that, that gun, not knowing anything about what I'm doing. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, pushed me towards the 6.547. That's what almost everybody was shooting at the time. And Rick Reeves was as nice a person as you could be to help someone get started. And he's still doing it to this day, just always helping people. And he uh, said, come on over to my house and I'll help you get going. And so he basically handed me a copy and paste load. Said, this is the speed that you want to run, you know, 2700 to 2720. Um, you're never going to have a pressure problem and it's just going to work. And so that's what I did. I just made it you know, sit at 2720. I thought that I needed to be on that, that upper side of that, the 2720, the 2700 would have been way too slow. And uh, sure. <laughs> so that's, that's what I sat it at. And it just, it, it just worked. And eventually, you know, using that can and, um, six, five, 47, I just started thinking that maybe there's a better way. So I, I'm asked Wade to, uh, chamber me up a six BR. Um, still didn't think he would have done me a dasher at the time. But uh, BR is basically a, a baby 6547. You can't hardly mess it up. So uh, I went with a, a BR and a break. And that's when I would say I really started reloading. Because like everything up to that point, you know, it was either stuff that I had read on the internet, which I wouldn't recommend doing necessarily, um, or what, what Rick had told me to do. So the 6BR was, was pretty much all brand new. Had to, you know, really figure all that out as far as annealing and stuff like that goes. Um, mm. So... It was, it was a pretty big jump for me, but again, I'm a tinkerer, so I'm, you know, trying to find everything that I can, that I can to, to, to get it rolling, and it just kind of, I mean, maybe I got lucky the first couple times, you know, to still have, uh, still have my eyesight, but I think I've got it, got it pretty knocked down now. Yeah, well, that, yeah, and and you started off excluding the Lapua, but six five by forty seven, any of the Creedmoors, a six BR Dasher, you name it. Those, those cartridges and those chamber designs are so forgiving that they're not particularly difficult to, to reload for. Um, so as a novice reloader, you know, if that's something you started off uh, first reloading for, you should be able to, to get some accuracy out of that yep. combination. So what's, thing, what's things look like now for Clay's cartridge? Because it, let our listeners know what Clay's cartridge is, what you guys do, and uh, how that came to be. So I owned a security company. That was the business that I, you know, stopped school for. And uh, so we did alarms and smart homes, cameras, things like that. And I had kind of gotten burnt out on it. I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. And it's really not that fun to crawl around in an attic in 110 degree Oklahoma heat because now the attic's 150. So I, I needed to get out of that and I wanted to get into the firearms 
part of things. And I was talking to Wade at his shop, and he suggested, um, you know, starting starting an ammo company. And so that's it's really Wade's doing um, for why I have what I have. And uh, so I started just loading for buddies um, initially, um, you know, like the Tates and and Austin's of the world. And Tate just wanted to have something where he didn't have to think about it. He could just grab ammo and go shoot and, and win a match. Um, probably more than anything, he was trying to support me, um, you know, more than, you know, because he could have obviously grabbed, you know, you know, 108 match, you know, Creed more ammo and, and done just fine. But mm-hmm. uh, I, he's always kind of just looked out for me. And um, so I started loading uh, Creed more. That was my first one once I had gotten my, my FFL. Um, six Creedmoor is what I started with. That was in 2019. And we went out to the Hornady match, the Hornady PRC, the first year. And I was shooting it. Uh, Tate was shooting it. And then a buddy of mine, Colin Barnes, was shooting it. And we all went with my ammo. And the point was to kind of show off what what it could do. You know, just like off the shelf. You know, nothing too in specific to your rifle, what it can do. And I, I want to say that we got like second, you know, fourth and eighth or something like that. I mean, and in a match like that, I mean, that was, you know, a pretty good showing. And, um, yeah. I was used to shooting a, a BR. So I got beat, you know, just things happen a little bit faster. It's not like it's really that much, what much different as far as recoil goes. It just happens a little bit faster and I wasn't used to it, but, um, that's how it, how that started was just loading Creedmoor for a couple of buddies and then deciding to turn that into a business thanks to Wade. And, um, I'm, I'm very particular about what I do and it just kind of scaled from there. Wow. So when you, you first got into there, you just, you just started with six Creedmoor. How did you, uh, work that load up? And, and today, how do you, how do you do load development for something that you're going to catalog or quote unquote catalog? So, uh, that one, again, Wade and Tate, they both always looked out for me and they said that I'd probably be best off to start with something and advertise it as made for Wade's chambers because he okay. obviously had a, a large customer base. Impact's got a big customer base. So immediately you're going to be into a market that, that has people looking for that. So I just bought a single six Creedmoor barrel and started load development on it. And that's how I got that, that first one. Uh, now, if I was going to start a new caliber, I would buy, um, a barrel from, you know, four or five different places, different barrel types, different, um, different gunsmiths. That way I can get as wide a range as possible, um, and make sure that I can find something that, that is realistically going to work in everything. And I'd get them in different lengths, you know, 24, 26, 28 inches, things like that. So that I, I've got some variance there. Cause you never know what somebody's going to have at the end of the day, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I'm never going to be somebody that loads things on the, the high end of pressure because you don't know what kind of gun it's going to go in. You don't know what the environmental conditions are going to be. So you need to make sure that it works all the time. So um, how I go about that is a little bit different than when somebody sends me a rifle to do load development on. Um, but uh, if I'm going to add a new new caliber to what I'm, you know, what I would call a you know, factory load, um, that's that's how I go about it. Okay. And how do you choose a bullet for that? You just look at what people are commonly shooting in that cartridge combination, or uh, do you look for something that's maybe really jump uh, forgiving or a specific weight? How do you narrow down what bullets you're going to pick? Um, typically, I go with you know the the top end as far as how heavy a bullet can be in its 
you know, partic particular class. So when I started with the six Creedmoor, the A-tips were brand new, and that's what I started with was, you know, loading it with A-tips. And that's still the only thing that I load for Creedmoor is A-tips. You know, nothing was out there that was being offered with A-tips. So it was something to, to separate myself from, from everybody else. Mm -hmm. And when I went to um, some of the smaller stuff when I'd load for, you know, a BR or a Dasher, like I had some stuff with 105s, but now um, that the uh, 109 ELDMs are out, that is the only bullet that I offer for people unless they specifically request an A-tip. So uh, it just made my life so much easier because the consi consistency bullet to bullet, I don't have to question anything. You've got an extremely high BC and it just really doesn't matter what kind of free bore the end user has. They're so, so jump insensitive that you can, it, it makes my job pretty easy. That's awesome. That's, that's what we like to hear. Now you, go ahead. No, Joe. go ahead. I was in a, so when you, you had mentioned earlier, and I think it would, uh, I think it would help some of our people out there. You said if someone will send you a gun and you'll, you'll tune it, I call it tuning, but you'll do the load development and work it up. You, I think you should bounce through that real quick for us because some people may be, interested or didn't know that or whatever so it's because that's pretty that's pretty handy there's not very many people out there that do that uh if somebody calls up and wants low development um the first thing i'm going to ask is what are you trying to accomplish because some people say that you know they want low development done but they're never going to shoot a deer past 100 yards well at the end of the day low development's not going to make that much of a difference at 100 yards as far as taking a deer because the vital zone's bigger than you know what uh what i'm going to send back so um, most of what I get are customers that are wanting to shoot deer and elk, you know, three, four, five, you know, out to a thousand yards or people that are shooting matches and want their bullets to stack on top of each other during a match. So um, the first thing is to find out what they're what they're wanting to accomplish. So um, 300 PRC is one that, that I get sent a lot of the time. 6.5 PRC is probably the most common one that I have sent my way. So um, first question is, you know, is it on a short action or is it on a long action or, or you know, even a medium? and what they're what they're trying to accomplish with it once we've got that that settled there are um very small number of bullets that i um try to you know push people towards because if you give somebody 10 choices they're probably going to pick the wrong one 10 times out of 10 so um <laughs> I, I really just try to give give a couple that i know that are going to work so um seven psalm is another one that i do a lot of um so uh, 175 eldx is my go-to in a seven psalm they work really well they kill really well and it makes my job fairly easy and i know about where that rifle typically wants to run so i've got a decent starting point but um once i have a barrel broken in this is going to sound counterintuitive, but I shoot two round groups at 100 yards. And the reason I shoot two round groups is the rifles that I'm getting are going to be you know, custom built. Not that I don't do factory stuff as well, but most of these are going to be custom rifles. Somebody's got a once in a lifetime kind of hunt coming up. And if those two bullets aren't touching or in the same hole, a third one doesn't fix it in my eyes. So um, there's no reason to shoot that third round. It's just putting an extra one on the barrel. So once I get those two rounds... Um, at bare minimum touching, but usually in the same hole. Now I'll extend it to three and five shot groups and I immediately transition to 600 yards. And that's where I fine tune it. I do this over ele electronic targets and steel targets so that I have a printout that I can show the customer like this is what your gun did in real time. I also just got a trigger cam so that they can see footage of what the rifle is doing um, in real time as it happens. So it's not just getting a picture back like, oh, you know, this is what my gun shoots at this distance. You're actually seeing it happen. So um, once I've got it tuned at 600 yards, I, I transition to a thousand yards. 
um, make sure that that everything um, works the way it's supposed to. Um, I don't make any guarantees when somebody sends me a rifle, but I do tell them what to expect. And that is a gun that shoots well under a quarter inch at 100, two inches or better at 600, um, and bare minimum is under a, a, um, five inches at a thousand yards. And um, to date, I haven't sent one back that would not do at least that. But uh, again, you just never know what you're going to get your hands on, so I don't make any any promises. But uh, that's that's what I tell people to expect. But um, this may sound counterintuitive to, to most people, but um, seating depth is absolutely you know most important from from what I do. Um, and then powder charge is secondary. And um, you know I could throw the math behind that, but it probably put people to sleep. So. Um, but uh, a lot of people trying to argue with me the other way, but I'm typically done with a rifle from start to finish if it's broken in, in, in 25 rounds. And that's, you know, including multiple three-shot groups at 600 and multiple three-shot groups at, at 1,000 um, that are meeting those those specs. So it's hard to, you know, you, you do the do it enough and you got to figure out how to make, make uh, you know, the time worth it. Because if you spend all day long or a couple of days doing low development, you just don't make a single dollar doing it. So you, you've got to figure out a way to, to do it quickly and, and do it well. So I just, you know, kind of, kind of have a method figured out that works and, um, I roll with it. Yeah, that's, that's oh, go ahead, Seth. I was just going to say that's, that's quite the process and, and, a, and a, a service, like you mentioned, Joe, that you just don't see everywhere. Well, and and it's so vitally. I think people miss like if you've got if you've got a once in, he mentioned Clay mentioned it a once in a lifetime hunt coming up, the amount of money and time and effort you have set up for this trip, the load development, bullets, ammo, all that is minuscule compared to the other um, resources you need to carry that out. So I think I think people miss sometimes how important that part is because at the end of the day, your success is going to depend on whether or not you you hit your target. Yeah. Hundred so, percent. Well, and I think that's very important. It is important, and there's a, a huge group of shooters out there that don't reload, and so they're yep. married to. I have this rifle, I have this factory ammunition, and if they don't like each other, um, there's an option out there to get that last little bit yeah. of performance. And you know, when it's a busy world out there, people have, in some cases, they have more money than time. And sure, if, if you can't, if you can't dedicate the time to do it right. Um, send it. Yeah. What I'm saying is, send it to Clay and get it done right, because you have you have yeah. a lot of money and time going to be tied up in your hunt so yeah and yeah and i liked your comment clay about seating depth and powder charge because yeah i learned that a long time ago there's certain cartridges just have happy spots with yep. the amount of powder you put in them and then after that you move the bullet around till everything comes together and you're done i uh when i was having this conversation with somebody i i told austin this is a couple of years ago when he wanted to uh tune up a six creed more for some some field matches and just run a little bit hotter and i he said where should i start this at i was like doesn't matter what speed you want put them at this depth and i promise you it's going to work and we have tried that depth from 2800 to 3250 in a six creed more and it sits there and just stacks them all day long and um, you could find a you know a powder charge that may work at a specific depth, but that one works at every powder charge. So yep. um, there's just you know there's there's e an easy way and a hard way, and I, I prefer the easy way. Yeah, isn't that through work smarter, not harder? That's for sure. Yeah, right. So that's obviously a big business for you. And did you get out of the security business and and dedicate solely to Clay's cartridge? I was still doing some security stuff in 2019 because. You know, it was expensive to get all the components, you know, get all the, you know, the, the accounts set up everywhere. It was kind of slow going at first. And 
you know, not all that many people knew about me. So if it wasn't Tate making a Facebook post or winning a match or the same thing with Austin, you know, people really didn't know. And then when I won the PRS in 2019, um, later in that year, I think four, four out of the top five, uh, finishers of the PRS were using my ammo. Um, and that's what was really when it, when it kind of took off. And then George Gardner, um, was a uh, was a huge has been a huge help from the beginning but uh when the 6gt started coming out um he told me about it and and that's really where things you know got big between one of the prs and then having a a cartridge like the 6gt that's again it's another easy one you know inherently accurate um and there really only being one reamer spec out there it was almost like i had the ability to do load development for everybody all at once so you mm -hmm. could get something and i knew that it was going to work no matter what you had and so that was that was a, a really big deal for me and, and george helped a lot with with getting me the the components getting me you know test barrels to to get this you know you know off to the races and and that's by far my biggest seller is is 6gt anymore but um that's that's where it took off the most yeah well you go ahead and win the national level prs i suppose that does a little bit for <laughs> get your name recognized yeah, it speaks a little bit yeah you'll find my name right in the middle where it's been <laughs> since i started <laughs> Uh, so that's Clay's cartridge. Now you're involved in a couple other businesses um, that are, you know, doing really well in this sport specifically. Um, you know, we, we need to talk about Ace Breaks and we need to talk about JTAC uh, and the training. And Joe just got to partake in some of that uh, JTAC instruction. And uh, from what I hear, it's just it's it's just really well done and and very eloquent in that if you already have shot a few matches you you can you can really like fine tune it is basically the way i understood it uh, if you went there having never shot a match probably not the right class for you but if you got a couple matches under your belt you've been doing a little bit this just really helps to refine some of the processes yeah so i went i can speak specifically to the advanced one i went to the advanced one clay had told me like look just come do it just just come do it because i've been shooting since i've been like i don't know eight oh, yeah. 12 whatever competitively yeah. now since forever. so and he's like just come to a class and i'm like and i didn't really poke him like with questions and stuff because just come to a class all right all right i'll come down there with an open mind or whatever and try it out and i will tell you what it's like why have i not been doing this before i mean this is so yes a few of the nuggets that you pick up are mm -hmm. um worth it worth every single penny yeah you heard it here folks if you're thinking about taking a class uh check them out jtac and uh, get some good instruction how did that jtac come to be uh through your eyes clay how did that uh, that shape up and you decide hey okay, this is something that that we could do and we could provide to people um so tate won the nrl um at you know the same year that i won the prs and so people had contacted tate and i about doing some classes justin was already doing classes privately um on you know whatever weekends and um i had done one class with i think it was just one class with justin and but people were asking him so we were you know tate and i talked about starting something and you know Justin was talking about starting something and then rick reeves you know kind of got us all together and said hey you guys you four need to get this done um he said i've got this many students that we're going to do it on this day you just tell me how much and so i think the first class was like 250 dollars or something like that and we had we didn't have curriculum you know what we were going to you know go for we just 
agreed that we would you know be there that date and time and Justin started us out and within about five minutes like you could just feel like a really natural flow between what Justin would say and then how we would each chime in and it, it formed really quickly but it's a hundred percent because of, of Rick Reeves I don't know that it would have happened otherwise but um, he kind of he pushed us to, to get it done and he was one of the people that came to that class and Rick is obviously a guy that's won a lot of matches done this for a long time and the fact that he was willing to come listen to us was really really cool for us and um, once we got that done, we, you know, we officially formed JTAC and I, th I don't think we even had a name for it at that point. I think it was probably a little while, a little while after before we actually came up with a name for it. And then we started scheduling classes and it took off really quickly. Um, because, you know, right or wrong, you know, people see, you know, your success at matches and they, they want to come hear what you have to say. And, um, I, I wish we had uh, some footage of what we were like in our first class versus what we are now to see how much it's changed. But mm -hmm. the information is, is the same. Probably how we present it is a lot more efficient now, but it's really the same information. But the, the results that people got was, was instant. I mean, we want people that have had, you know, got matches under the belt, know how to shoot a gun, but just aren't quite there yet for, for whatever reason. And we've had a lot of people come through our class and then that have never won a match. And then within a month, they've won a national level match. And wow. there, there have been a lot of people that have been in that spot. And it's not, not coincidence. They have the ability to do it, but there's something holding them back. And so we, we're way more about quality of shots than quantity. We tell you to bring a couple hundred rounds to the class. You're probably not going to shoot anywhere near that because I'm going to sit there and stop you after virtually every round that that you take and quiz you about what you saw, you know, what are you going to do now with that information? So I'm trying to break down every single thing that's going on while somebody's on the gun. That way they underst really understand the process rather than them just being a copy and paste, you know, you know, goober that I'm going to do this because I was told to, I want them to understand why they want to do that in that situation. So, um, I mean, the results, you know, for, for customers just really is what drove it. Yeah, proof's in the pudding, though. So I need to. So you're telling me I need to thank Rick Reeves the next time I see him. Then you should probably thank Rick Reeves. Otherwise, this, right. this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe you shouldn't thank Rick Reeves because maybe then we wouldn't be hanging out at all. <laughs> <you know>? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. Well, it's I can speak for. So one example, Clay, you probably remember this. So we're at class, and we're shooting off these tires, and I have one of them where stuff just isn't work. I'm trying to fight in my bag and this and that, and Clay's like, I shoot a little bit, and then he's like, Hey, hold on, what what's going on? What's the matter? Why are we having issues? L literally like that. Why are you having an issue? I said, well, I can't, I can't get the gun positioned stable and stuff. Okay. Where does the front go? Well, the front needs to go in there. Yes, that's right. What about the back? Well, the back I'm fighting it. So he's like, here, just for a minute, let me see your gun. Grabs a gun, grabs a bag. He's like, why don't you hold it like this? And literally by positioning the bag differently in my hand, he's mm -hmm. like, now you can hold it like this. You can go like this and you can go like this. Put it in there, went over those tires. And I was like, Better remember that one. Yeah. So it's little, little it's little things like that of let you let you fumble the ball, and then say why? Why are you fumbling? Why are you struggling? What's going on? Well, I can't do this. Okay, let's analyze why and let's fix it. Why don't you grab it like this? Money. Ooh. I can think of I can think of Justin on stuff with the same the 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 theory is the same. Tate on a spotting scope, Austin on different things. Well, why did you shoot that way? Why did you break that shot? Well, I thought no, we don't do that. Yep. So it's, it's things like that. And it's very, I wouldn't say it's blunt clay, but it's, it's, it's very honest. It's, it's straightforward. Let's, let's not, 
sugarcoat anything. I think it's why, isn't it Justin that says facts don't care about your feelings? Facts do not care about your feelings. I, I have adopted that saying and I love that because it's true. I mean, let's just, let's call it what it is and adapt and overcome. I mean, so, we're, you're not going to get any better if we put out, you know, four MOA targets and just say, oh, good job. You hit that target and, and never, you know, break down what you're doing. Like we want realistic you know, target sizes, even on the small side so that you can really learn something from, from what's going on. And we're going to be direct about what you need to do because that's what you're paying us to be there for. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'll typically let people go a little bit further and on, you know, in the first day, but the second day I'm really going to start nitpicking, um, because it, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose when you come to one of these, it's, it's so much so fast. Um, but you know, we have a lot of repeat students and something that I, I ask people is, do you want me to nitpick you? Um, because there's, there's little things that we can do, just little bitty things. And, um, every single time, that's the first thing that someone says to me when they come back for a second class, like, I want you to nitpick everything. And, um, it's just, it, it's really rewarding. It's really cool to see people have those, the light bulb moments and, and go from finishing in mid pack to now, instead of being 50th, they're finishing, you know, in the top 10 consistently, or they pick up their first match win. Um, I mean, we've had people that had never finished in inside the top 60 and they get top three, their next match. Um, and that's just, it, it's a really, really cool feeling. Yeah. That's rewarding yeah. to say the least. Well, Streeter, Streeter's on scope and he's like, he would, he would. He wanted you to miss the target with a scope. So you would learn, why did you miss? Mm -hmm. He's like, what are you going to learn if you hit it all the time, unless you know exactly where you hit it? He's like, no, I want you to miss. So then we analyze why and how and fix and fix yeah. it. And so, it helps that they're removed. You know, they're not in the gun on the trigger. Sure. They're removed, watching you, watching your mechanics, yep. watching the trace, watching the wind. And uh, yeah, that, that's got to help. So JTAC obviously doing well, and Joe can attest to to the level of instruction. And then the the third kind of gear in this cog is ace brakes. And what what precipitated the necessity for for ace brakes? And obviously uh, Tate Streeter being in the manufacturing business, um, how did that discussion start? And what problems did you solve with uh, with that muzzle device? Um. Austin, Justin, and myself were, were using APA brakes. We started, we used impact brakes for a while, and then we decided to try out APA brakes. And um, again, gear changes so quickly in this sport. And, you know, the APA was great at reducing your horizontal and, and vertical recoil, but the, with those ports angled back to you, it's almost impossible not to blink. And if you don't have your eyes open, you obviously can't see what's going on down range. And if you don't know exactly where your bullet hit, not just that it hit or that it missed, it's kind of a guess for your next shot. And um, so you want to make sure that you can keep your eyes open. But the biggest thing was that we would leave a, a two-day match and our heads would just hurt. You're, even with ear protection on all weekend long, your ears would be ringing. And um, it, it just it, it was kind of a punishing way to shoot. So we wanted to... Um, design something that would not be hurtful to a shooter while also being as effective as possible. So we, um, you know, came up with this brake design. We were in Tate's shop, and he pretty much just uh, essentially just donated his day. You know, he said, hey, here's your, the, the, here are my CNCs, here's my mills, um, let's, you know, knock this out. And so we had some some mock-ups done and then just did the finish work at, at Tate's shop, and we had several different designs that we wanted to try out. 
and we uh, did a lot of testing with um, slow motion cameras and you know cameras on scope and we did this you know on the gun and off the gun um, so that we could really see you know try to you know to make it as unbiased as possible like sitting a gun on a bag you know by itself in the exact same position and just pulling the trigger without you know affecting the rifle and seeing measuring how much that moves we did a lot of stuff like that and so we found um, we wanted straight ports was something we were not willing to compromise on because almost everything has angled ports and we did not want the blast to come back at the shooter because it's it's a it's a survival instinct. You got a blast coming back at you. Your body naturally wants to protect itself, and that's you know the blinking. So, we wanted to uh, keep that from happening, and we wanted to also keep the the muzzle as flat as possible. You know, horizontal recoil isn't all that important with what we're doing. Um, it's absolutely not the most important thing because that's not you know taking that target out of your out of your view. And we're shooting you know anywhere from 15 to you know, some people shoot 27, eight pound rifles and they're all going to be pretty light recoiling, you know, six dashers, six creed moors, you know, things like that. So, you know, getting beat up by a rifle is, is not really a concern for us. So we wanted to keep it as flat as possible. So what we did with those straight ports is we tilted them forward and then we put rows of holes on three rows of holes on the top to force more air through that. So we would keep it as flat as possible without catching any of the blast. And then we used a vernier scale so that you could you know, properly time it and know exactly how much you're moving it each time. Um, and mm-hmm. now when you, you know, break it off and put it back on, it comes back to the same place every time. So you can make sure that that recoil is going straight up and down. You're not getting any sideways jump and it's repeatable every single time. So, um, Tate was obviously, you know, huge in that. Um, Austin and I knew it and what we wanted. And, um, I mean, Again, Tate was just, he was gracious enough to, to let us use his machines and, and get it rolling. And then Andy Hawkins of Hawkins Precision makes those breaks for us now. Um, and I mean, I, I'm very happy with, with how they've turned out. I, I would not want to, I'm not willing to put my name on something that I'm not proud of, that I wouldn't happily shoot in every condition. And I'm absolutely happy to have my name on that. That's that's cool. an awesome story. That's, and, that's it, and it's really well done from the development standpoint. It doesn't sound like you just, yeah, let's make a recoil reducing muzzle break. You went into what direction of recoil are we concerned with? And yeah, what, and what sh- matters? Yeah, and shootability. <clears throat> Joe, Joe's lived it. You've lived it. We've all, yeah, you get done and it feels like, yeah, you were inside of a pop can and got rolled down the stairs or something. <laughs> I mean, it's you shoot a long day and, yeah, your head feels like a pumpkin uh, of shooting those big muzzle breaks, even though the, the rifle, yeah, it's a 20-pound gun doesn't recoil it at all. Uh yeah, it feels like you got hit by a truck, and and that's a really neat design, and uh, only going to be increasingly more popular as the years continue, uh, and more and more people get into this sport. And uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about stewardship, and uh, I feel like you and in your involvement with all these companies, that's what makes this sport so great. Is it's so inviting. You know, it's obviously there's some financial bars that, that yeah. kind of bar entry a little bit because it, you know, a lot of that gear can get expensive, you know, the weapon and the, and the uh, optic and all that. But the group, if you go to a match and you've never been, you'll never, you will not find a group of people more excited to help you than at a precision rifle match. And uh, that speaks volumes. And that's something that you guys do in spades and clay you specifically, that is something that, that I'm blown away every time I go to a match and I see you and, and the rest of the Oklahoma guys or anybody else that's at that top level so willing to stop what they're doing and say, 
you know, or to, to give you a pointer or do you want whatever. Some help? Do you want some help? Yeah, it's <laughs> just, it's remarkable because, yeah, there's way more people in the middle of the pack than there is at the top, and you guys stop what you're doing to, to help others up, and that is very admirable, and, uh, yeah, it's it's great to have you on our team. Well, I, I appreciate it. I, I remember what it was like when, when I started, and it just, sometimes it feels like you've been tossed into the deep end because it's not something like baseball where you start out in t-ball and then coach pitch and then 10 and 12 and under and, and you know scaling up from there it's nothing and then this you know there's not a not a lead yeah. up to it so it's a little bit you know sometimes it could feel like you know being just tossed into the deep end and there are, there are better ways to do it than what i did which is start right into to two-day matches i mean you could go to club matches or 22 matches and kind of get your feet wet but a lot of people do just just jump in and it's you know it it can be intimidating so I remember being too scared to ask people for help, um, and so I, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and say that I'm the best on the planet at it, but I try and like help out those people that are that are struggling um, because it's you know it, it's gonna mean the world to them. You know, just just a few minutes is gonna make their entire weekend. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you go from hitting you know ten targets to to hitting fifty. You know, it may not be what they wanted, but it it beats the heck out of ten. So um, yeah, that's for any, sure. <laughs> And and you're right. The people in the sport are as good as gold. Um, you know, like I said, you know, Rick Reeves, you know, started helping me from the very beginning. Uh, before the very first time I met Wade, he asked me what I was going to shoot for the scholarship match that was coming up, and I was like, I don't have anything to shoot. I just sold all my guns to you know start this build and hand you hand you a check. Um, he said, Why don't you just take my rifle? Like he's never met me. Like never. You know, I, I talked to him for two minutes on the phone before he invited me to my shop or to his shop. And uh, he's offering, you know, me ammo, his match rifle, um, and that's something that you see all over the country from from people. There's just, you know, fantastic people. Um, I I was working at, at Tate's house a couple of years ago, and uh, I w- <clears throat> was in a vehicle that was not mine. It was my grandmother's vehicle, and I hit a pothole, you know, leaving, um, you know, the area that that he lives in, and it broke the subframe. Um, you know, the, the ground, I didn't know that, that that at the time, but the ground was so wet that I couldn't even, you know, change the tire that, that had popped, but it ended up cracking the subframe, so I couldn't drive it even after it got the tire changed. And uh, called up Tate, it's midnight, and he, you know, wakes up, grabs his truck, um, you know, gets a trailer, comes and, comes and gets me, um, puts me on there, and then says, hey, just take my truck, bring it back whenever you, you know, have something you can drive. And... Um, obviously Tate's a, a fantastic person, but there are a lot of people in this game that would, would do the same, same kind of thing. Wow. That's a that's cool story. That and that, a cool yeah, story. It shows the guy's true color. So one thing I want to, uh, try to extract out of you before we wrap this up, uh, because I, I'd mentioned in a match, you know, during the match, you have to be hyper-focused and you're, you're obviously very competitive. You, uh, you'll take the time to talk to other people and, and help them out. And that's great. Well, you're still a competitor and you're still trying to win and you are in contention to win every single match that you go to. So you come up to a stage. What goes through your head? What is your your process? Do you have a checklist uh, that you do every time that you come up to a stage? You know, I when I leave the house, I say out loud, wallet, cell phone, car keys. I say it out loud to make sure I have all three items and then I look at them. Is there a, a little checklist that you have as you come up to a stage that uh, the you know listener of a podcast might might hear that and go, okay, I need to create something like that. I mean, obviously you've been doing this a while, so I could you know see where you've kind of got it down to a system. 
but is there still some checks that you go through as you come up and prepare for a stage so you can get focused back in? Yeah, so the the most important thing right off the bat is to find where your targets are. So what I'll do is I'll set up my tripod and my binos um, as, you know, direct behind the firing line as possible. If there's multiple positions, I'll try and find a middle point um, so that you can get as much accurate info as you can. Um, but finding the targets is, is the most important and having that as a visual reference rather than just something through binos because it's, it looks different when you get down on the gun and you don't want to have to search for targets. So I'm finding my targets, making you know notes of landmarks in my head before I start making my, my dope card so that it's just, it, it, it'll feel like I've, when I get to the stage and I'm actually shooting, it'll feel like I've done it 10 or 15 times. And, mm. um, you know, I'm always going to, you know, peek at, at what each person is doing in front of me. I'll keep on glass whenever they're shooting, but as they're moving, I'm, you know, moving over to see, you know, where they're going. Are they struggling with this? You know, what's, what's the bag placement like? You know, what, how many notches of bipod do they have? Things like that, that I'm, I'm trying to absorb every little thing. Um, so, um, when you, uh, when you're doing that, it, it kind of sucks you back into that zone pretty quickly, but okay. so it's, it's not, 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 not too bad to go from, you know, giving some advice to getting right back in the game. Um, it's not like you're spending, uh, an, an hour, you know, talking with somebody and then two seconds before the, the stage you have to, you have to go shoot. I mean, it's, you, you've got some time to get things figured out, but those are the things that I do, um, before I, you know, as, as I leave a stage, first thing I do is I load my mag so that if, uh, if I have, you know, a brain hiccup somewhere, I don't have to, to worry about that. So I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to do little things to protect myself. That's a good point, and I'm, I'm glad you said that, and I can, I can speak to that. Joe, you might be able to as well. Uh, my first few matches that I shot uh, that were uh, PRS style, uh, I didn't take binoculars or a tripod. And there are times now where I just don't, I don't take them, I forget them, I don't bring them, or whatever. Um, I can tell, just like you mentioned, when I spend time behind glass, right when I get to the stage, locate all the targets, get the landmarks. When I get down on the gun, I already know where the next one is. I feel like I've already been there. I've already seen it. And I, I can't say it's helped my scores or my impacts at all, but it helps me internally just calm down that last little bit. You know, when, when the clock's on and, and the wheels fall off because you're under a time crunch, I feel way more decompressed when I know where that next target's at because I've already seen sure. them all. You don't, you don't panic because you can't find it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. And it does, like you said, it does help bring you back into focus. No matter what you were talking about or what you're doing before, you're looking through glass, you're finding targets, and it's easy to, to re-hone in on, sure. on that competitive edge. That's a, that's a good point. Joe, yeah. is there anything else that you want to talk to Clay about? Um, we're coming up in on an hour here. I know you've got a, a meeting after this, um, and we've got a captive guest here so if there's anything you want to know about clay is there anything else you want to hit him yeah, up but on? we don't have enough time we don't have enough time to to talk about all this but i'll get to pick his brain here in a couple of weeks we get to shoot together out in utah so i'm looking forward i get to shoot with all the guys that's uh, true yeah justin we, justin i don't think is going to be there though, but it's tate tate austin and clay so i'm really i'm really looking forward to that that'll be a fun match yeah we'll we'll see you out there and that's yeah coming right up yeah. in just a couple of weeks that's a big one a lot of folks show up to that match. A lot of good shooters. Incredible venue. Incredibly challenging course of fire. Um, that's uh, yeah, that's going to be a fun match, and I'm I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to that one. It's 
absolutely the, probably the prettiest venue out there and you know quite possibly the most challenging one of the year everybody wants to go there um you always get a ton of top shooters at that one it might as well be the finale i mean realistically it's pretty much the finale with the with the shooters show up i'm, I'm excited for that yep and that's the the hornady precision rifle challenge there in utah again amazing venue and yeah just like you said clay i mean that is the best of the best show up at this one so it'll be a slug fest and i'll be i'll be happy to be there shooting and pulling the trigger and, and enjoying it well clay i can't thank you enough for, for carving time out of your day and your schedule to uh, chat with with joe and i um you know we've talked about it before but you and the rest of the crew obviously just great stewards of the sport um you deserve everything good that's ever happened to you uh we appreciate uh, you shooting our bullets and representing our brand so well. And, uh, again, just thanks for coming on with us. Well, it, it's a no brainer, um, using, using your bullets. Um, I mean, it's, it's just, you can't argue with the, with the performance and how easy they are. Um, but, uh, I, I couldn't be, you know, happier, you know, luckier, blessed to, you know, be part of, you know, team Hornady. Um, it's kind of like getting called up by the Yankees when you get that phone call asking if you want to <laughs> join team Hornady. So, um, That's pretty cool. I, uh, I couldn't be any happier. Appreciate it. Well, everybody out there, hopefully you enjoyed this podcast. Uh, We really appreciate Clay shooting for us, and we will catch you guys on the next one.